Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Well, here we are at the end of 2023. In fact, it's the very last day. This is New Year's Eve, is it not? Seems hard to believe that 2023 is essentially over and we stand on the threshold of 2024. Time has certainly flown by and so it seems really appropriate to me that we would take a few moments to consider Psalm 90. The psalm is entitled, Of Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. That stopped me right there. I thought, boy, that's an interesting title, The Man of God. And immediately my mind flew to John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God. His name was John, John the Baptist. And there are a number of others in the scripture where this title is given. And I'm not sure whether this is part of the inspired text, but I liked it anyway. Moses, the Man of God. Certainly, we would agree with that title. And I was wondering, if somebody was to put a little descriptor on your life, would they be able to say a man or a woman of God? I trust that would be the case. This is the only psalm in the entire hymnal that is attributed to Moses. And likely, uh, very probably, the very oldest of the psalms. Moses was a man who was trained and educated in ancient Egypt. He was adopted, you remember the story, by Pharaoh's daughter. And he had access to the best tutors, the best schooling. All the treasures of Egypt were within his grasp. And yet the New Testament tells us he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God and with his own people rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. What, a, what an amazing thing. Moses is a real somebody here in that sense. He is a very well-educated man. Moses' life was made up of three 40s. It's a really interesting study, by the way. Sometimes take up the 40s in the scriptures. Very, very interesting. Moses spent 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian in the desert, tending his father-in-law's flocks, and 40 years leading the people of Israel. And we learn this from the address of Stephen in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7. Now it appears that, to me anyways, that this prayer of Moses was likely written in the last 40 years, with much of Israel's wandering in the wilderness behind him. And this prayer, the reason I say that, this prayer has all the marks of a man with experience. C.H. Spurgeon, Mr. Charles Spurgeon, the famous English preacher, in his Treasury of David, indicated that this psalm has been called the most sublime of human compositions. The deepest in feeling, the loftiest in theological conception, the most magnificent in its imagery. How true that is. Let's look at the opening section of this prayer. And in your bulletin, it will be the first point. God Almighty is our dwelling place, verses 1 and 2. Here we have a magnificent declaration of the dwelling place of every believer in God that will endure from everlasting to everlasting. Remember, Moses is writing 
recognizing that they've been living in tents in the wilderness, wandering with 40, for 40 years with no permanent dwelling place. And yet, Moses, in the confidence of faith, says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. In God, we have shelter, protection, comfort, and fellowship. Even from the tent, pitched in a barren wilderness, a most humble and transient abode, Moses can rejoice that his true dwelling place is in God. This is a direct result of believing in God, trusting in him, and obeying his commandments. What does the New Testament tell us in 1 John? Whosoever keeps my commandments abides in God and God in him. Notice it says, too, in all generations. The Christian's dwelling place has remained unchanged through the centuries and will forevermore. None of this, I really enjoy thinking about this, none of this is touched by the finger of decay. Unlike the palatial palaces of men, no matter how much money is spent, eventually the earthly place we call home falls into ruin and disrepair and eventually crumbles into obscurity. Not so with the dwelling place of God. It abides eternal, unchanged, untouched by decay. Why is this? It is because he is eternal and unchanging. Even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. How can we possibly comprehend the meaning of this statement? As mortals, how do we grasp the meaning of the eternity of God? As far back as we can possibly imagine before the mountains were brought forth or formed and the earth came into being, God was there. The late Ray Stedman, who was a, an excellent pastor of, the, of a church in California, in Palo Alto, said it this way, from the vanishing point in the past to the vanishing point in the future, God is there. What he meant by that was, have you ever traveled across the plains where you're on a very straight highway and the land is flat and it seems to go on into infinity? And the road becomes, as you look down into the distance, the road becomes smaller and smaller and smaller until finally it's just a point. That's what he meant. You look that way as far as you can see and it disappears to a point. You look behind you, the same thing again, the vanishing point. John tells us in Revelation chapter 1, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha, the first letter in the alphabet. Omega, the last letter in the alphabet. In other words, he's the beginning, the end, and everything in between of all things. Is it not comforting to know that our dwelling place is with the Almighty and eternal God? These are very hard concepts for us to really take aboard and to really understand, but we can rejoice in them because your trust, if you're a believer today, is in the everlasting, eternal God, and we can certainly rejoice in that. Secondly, the, transition, the transitory nature of our existence, which is the second point in your bulletin, and Linda read these verses, verses three to six, and we see from those verses how frail man is. We return to dust from where we came 
And by the way, the timing of that transition is totally in the hands of God. He ordains our birth and also the day of our death. Verse 4 indicated in in that section that a thousand years to God is absolutely nothing. It's like the snap of your finger or a watch in the night. In comparison to eternity, the most lengthened reaches of time are mere points. Mr. Spurgeon again pointed out that in a thousand years, that's a long time, entire empires can rise and fall. Dynasties rise, and then they're obliterated. We think of a thousand years as an exceedingly long time and full of very important events. How small and insignificant these all must seem to an infinite God. And then verses 5 and 6 emphasize how transient our lives really are. And there's some metaphors given. A sweeping flood takes no time to uproot everything, trees, bridges, everything, houses. Things that we view as solid and immovable are subjected to enormous forces from which they were never designed to withstand, and they fall. Our lives are swept away in absolutely no time at all. Another analogy is the grass, which grows real quick in the morning, and then by nightfall is withered away. How quickly the flower fades. When I read these verses and was thinking about them, my mind went to 1 Peter 1 and 24. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower thereof falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. What assurance. There's an old gospel hymn that we used to sing that was a hymn of entreaty to be in time. What they meant by that was be in time to accept the message of salvation and be in time to take advantage of what Christ has done for you while in life. Life at best is very brief. Like the falling of a leaf, like the binding of a sheaf, be in time. Fairest flowers soon decay, youth and beauty pass away. Oh, you have not long to stay, be in time. These verses, this this poetry brings, along with these verses, bring our mortality into sharp focus and cause us to think about just how quickly life passes. The third bulletin, the third point in your bulletin is God's righteous anger against sin. So we need to read a few extra verses here now from verse number seven. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you and our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according 
to the fear of you. It's interesting to me, if you go to the internet, for example, and you look for sermons on Psalm 90, there's just a, just a whole bunch of them. And I didn't listen to hardly any of them because I, I didn't want it influencing my thinking about these verses, not to say that they aren't absolutely excellent. Uh, I did listen to Alistair Begg's message, which I thought was just excellent on this psalm. But in, just in general, I, I noticed that there was something missing um, in many of the commentaries or many of the comments on this psalm. People tend to skip over this section. People like the front of the psalm, they like the back end of the psalm, but they miss this section. And I thought that was very interesting. You know, sometimes I think we have a mistaken notion that the wrath of God, his righteous anger against sin is some sort of a mark or a blemish on divine character. That is absolutely not true. Indifference to sin, let me, let me just state it to you this way. Indifference to sin is a moral blemish. God's wrath, what is it? It's moral integrity. His holiness is stirred into action and into activity because of our sinfulness. And divine wrath is one of the perfections of God. It's worth meditating upon that. And so I don't want to skip over this section. The reason is Moses, the man of experience, saw this firsthand. He had seen in the wilderness the anger of God. The people rebelled. They complained. They disobeyed God. And the sins were known to the Lord, whether they were in the open or whether they were secret sins. And I don't have time to give you precise examples of those, but both happened in his experience. God visited them in judgment and in a dramatic way. You remember um, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and 250 other leaders in Israel tried to assert themselves as priests. They wanted to overthrow Aaron and they were challenging the authority of Moses. The Lord's judgment was swift and it was terrifying. The earth split beneath their dwellings. Moses told the people, stand back. And all of them perished with the earth closing over them. Those witnessing this judgment were indeed dismayed, as verse 7 says. Maybe we could even say terrified when they saw the judgment of God. On another occasion, the people complained against Moses and against God, saying they didn't have any food or water, neither were true. And they said, this bread that you give us every morning that falls from heaven, we're sick of it. We're tired of it. We're, we're done with that. And they started longing for what they had back in Egypt. In fact, they even went so far as to say they called it worthless food that God was giving them. God's judgment fell again. Poisonous serpents invaded the camp and were biting everyone. And if it wasn't for God's mercy and allowing Moses to raise this brass serpent on the pole and they were told, look and live, they would have all perished. The command given, look and live, is a portent, a picture to us of sin being nailed to the cross in the person of Christ. And all we need to do as poor sinners acknowledging our guilt, we look, we accept, and we live. What a gl glorious thing. The nation's sin and unbelief, Israel's sin, resulted in an entire generation falling in the wilderness. None of them would see the promised land. 
Is it any wonder that Moses says in verse 9 that all our days are passed away in thy wrath? It seems more time was spent under God's wrath than anything else. Instead of heading in a straight course for the land of promise, instead of that, they wandered in a big circular pattern through the wilderness of the northern Sinai. Hebrews tells us in chapter 3, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test. They saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It must have been quite discouraging for Moses. He says, we bring our years to an end. They are soon gone and we fly away. Now, perhaps we live to 70 or even 80. I can remember when I was in my 20s, I thought 70 was, that's ridiculously old. That's so far downstream. Well, guess what? I'm just a touch over 70 and I can't believe it. Where did the years go? They're gone. So if you're that age or even younger, time is rolling on. And you will be surprised how quickly life will pass by. Even if we live to 80, regardless, the years of our life pass so quickly. The King James Version says, like a tale that is told, like a story that someone's telling you. The lives of Israel were shortened because of their sinfulness, and they were consumed by God's anger. Throughout history, since the fall, the lifespan of man seems to, at least from what I can see, is like steadily decreased from those early days in Genesis till now. And perhaps is that because of the effects of the fall and the effects of sin. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, what I think is missing to a great degree, even in our church circles, is the fear, the reverential fear of God. No one feels accountable in a sense and therefore spends no time preparing for their inevitable departure from this life. Thank the Lord that every believer in this room has been delivered from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians. So we come to verse 12, which is really the key verse of this whole chapter. In verse 12, it says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is the important lesson that Moses prays that we might learn. Because of what we've been considered, it's prudent and smart for us to realize that we won't be here forever. Numbering our days reminds us that time is limited, death is a certainty, and we should be prepared for the day, that day when it comes. Such thinking will give us a heart of wisdom. You know why? Because priorities shift away from earthly things and cause us to carefully consider what will happen beyond the grave. Now, I have summarized on this first slide, this chart, some of the reasons why we should number our days, if we could put that chart up. You can see, and I'm going to discuss each one of these in turn, hopefully very briefly, so don't be too discouraged. <laughs> First point, 
Life is very uncertain. You say, well, that's obvious, but we don't really think that way. We just, okay, I've got to do this tomorrow, got to get this done this week, got all these things to do this month. And especially as we trip over into a new year, all these priorities start to flood into our minds and hearts. But life is very uncertain, and we have no idea what 2024 holds. Remember my mother telling me a story which she said she never forgot, and once she told it to me, I never forgot it. She was a very young girl, maybe 10, maybe a little bit less than that, and living in a rural and farm environment. Her aunt and uncle lived not too far away, young people as well. Her aunt was having a child uh, early in their, um, early in their life, and there were complications. Even though there was a doctor present, of course, in those days, this is the 1930s, the medical care is not what it is today, and they unfortunately were not close to a hospital. Complications arose during the delivery, and both the mother and child died. And the doctor was, was so distraught, because if he could have just got her to a hospital, he knew he could have saved her, but he did not have the equipment uh, to intervene. She told me that what happened is they went to the, to the uh, wake and the funeral service. And of course, in those days, they were held in the homes, not in a funeral parlor or funeral uh, mortuary. When she went, it was uh, a most sad and tragic. And uh, the amount of grief that was felt was almost um, beyond description because uh, as the, um, they entered into the home, here was uh, her aunt, a very vivacious, and uh, everybody liked her, wonderful woman. Here she lay, was laying out in death, and her little child was in the crook, the crook of her arm. So such <clears throat> an event left an indelible impression upon her, my mother, that life is short, and we have no idea what's gonna happen, and we need to make preparation. To use imagery from the scripture, we can say it like this, the cable breaks, the vessel sails upon the sea of eternity, the silver cord is loosed, the pitcher is broken at the fountain, to borrow from Ecclesiastes. It seems so sad when death comes early in life, perhaps suddenly when no one expects it. No one knows the day of their death, and so that's why we should number our days and apply our hearts to wisdom. Secondly, life at best is fleeting. How fast time flies, and we've mentioned that already. I mentioned what Job said here in this little bullet point. Job said it's faster than a weaver's shuttle. That's probably the fastest thing he could think of in his day. The Egyptians were excellent weavers, and they were quite clever at setting the, weave, the loom up in an appropriate way, and the shuttle would fly back and forth horizontally, and the expert weavers could hit the boat or the, the, uh, the shuttle in such a way that it would go through what they called the shed incredibly fast, and almost to the point where you could hardly see it fly. That's what life is like, it's fleeting. And as we go 
get older, time seems to go by more quickly. Um, <laughs> uh, on the downhill slope, we, we seem to accelerate toward old age even more quickly than before. Uh, most of us here, all of us, I suppose, have been over I-70. You get to the Eisenhower Tunnel at the top, it's over 11,000 feet, I think it is, and then you start to descend, and the descent is rather scary because that descent is a long descent. It's, two, it's about eight and a half miles. Some of the grade, a good portion of it anyways, is like six, seven percent grade downhill, and that is a long and steep hill. And the nice thing about it is at least big trucks and even with our cars, we can gear down so we don't mess our brakes up on the way down. We can gear down, but with life, you can't do that. 